afternoon, universe. Welcome to Cross Defense, your weekly dose of knowing why you believe what you believe so that you can give an answer to anyone who would ask you about that hope that you have in you, that hope in the totality of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done, and of what Jesus is coming again to do. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and together we are on a journey working our way through the landmark Christian dogmatics of Dr. Francis Pieper, a monumental series of books devoted to the belief that when God speaks, when he gives us his word, he does so with the complete possibility that we speak that word back to him, that we hear it, that we get all of it, that we confess it. That sound doctrine, then, isn't just a set of right answers to be kept on a shelf or a pipe dream of men. But it's the effect that happens when Scripture alone gives the grace alone and faith alone that points us to Christ alone to us, meeting our lives as the answers, the salve that we so desperately need in this age of darkness and trial. St. Paul exhorts all Christians to hunger for the truth, to, he says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. For the time is coming, he warns, when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead will turn aside to suit their own desires, gathering around them a great number of teachers who teach what their itching ears want to hear. But you, however, Christian, he says you must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, and so encourage others. I have guests with me today, brothers in arms, Pastor Sean Danzer of Trinity Lutheran Church in Great Bend, North Dakota, and Peace Lutheran Church in Barney, North Dakota, and Pastor Aaron Hamilton, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lisbon, North Dakota. Welcome back, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Looking forward to it. We got some great stuff to, to talk about today, and I think we're going to get a little sidetracked as well because Dr. Pieper is going to reference a biblical text, and we're going to dig into it a bit because we want this to be something that would be good to do with all of Pieper. It would take you forever, but you know, he, there's tons of places where he just kind of puts a footnote or, or, or a side comment, oh, there's this biblical text here or there's this biblical text there, to actually go and like look at that text in its context, that, that so-called proof text in its context, and see the whole uh, thing around it and, and what it's really getting at. And we'll maybe have to do that a little bit today to make sure we get the point of what he's pointing at. But we're not there yet. So let's let's start off the discussion kind of where we left off last time with the, with the other fellas, where Pieper says that only non-Christian religions ask men to save and better themselves by their own striving and efforts. Uh, the reason that strikes me is because, uh, well, quite often I think I hear people purporting to be teaching the Christian religion, effectively effectively preaching that I ought to strive to better myself uh, and, and in, in a sense, not necessarily save myself, but to, to please God. And so it's kind of fighting words again here. Uh, Pieper says that's just not Christian. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, there's um, that wonderful doctrine that I remember hearing uh, not at the Lutheran church that I went to growing up, but when I went away to college to a Christian church or to a Christian college, um, I remember so often hearing in the mandatory chapel services that uh, Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what God did. Now, what are you going to do to please God? And that's supposed to be Christian. Like that's supposed to be the good news, or or is that supposed to inspire yeah, that, that you? Yeah, that was that was the good news. Um, that was the call to faith, I guess. 
And you, I mean, this is something that you and I have talked about a little bit before, uh, Pastor Hamilton, but you, your background is not a Lutheran background. It's not like you're coming at this thing like, well, I've been Lutheran my whole life and we're right. Like you were out in the in the boondocks for a while. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really interesting. I was raised, I was baptized and catechized in an LCMS congregation, but yeah, I went away to college and boondocks were kind of a ways away from where I was. I was way past the boondocks. I was out in the sticks. It was... It so was can, rough. Can you talk about that a little bit? Just uh, so you don't have to name names, but uh, talk about what that yeah. experience was like, what it did. Yeah, I, I went to a, a nameless Christian college in uh, a state in the United States of America. <laughs> Is that vague enough? Yeah, it's vague enough. Um, <laughs> um, and they claimed to be a good conservative Christian college. And I, I got in with a dormitory there that ended up... Um, Essentially, they were trying to make themselves into an emergent church. Um, I don't know if uh, how experienced your listeners are with the emergent church movement, but essentially it's um, being the church without any institution, without claiming any absolute truth. Um, so it's Christianity pretty much without Jesus. Um, and so we were we were doing all sorts of very strange stuff, but that was just in the dormitory. Throughout the rest of the college, um, we had all sorts of, we had any range from strict five-point Calvinism to, oh, I don't know, some weird charismatic Pentecostal stuff going on. And you kind of bought into quite a bit of that and even came, uh, if I can share this part, came back to an LCMS seminary to teach the LCMS what was what. Yeah, that was that was actually a lot of fun. Um, I remember uh, having a, a great conversation with my classmates, not at the seminary, but at my college. They were going on to a Calvinist seminary, and I was going on to a Lutheran seminary. And we said, you know, that we do have some disagreements on some little things like, uh, you know, whether or not the bread and wine are the body and blood of Jesus, as the text clearly says, as Jesus himself said, and whether or not baptism saves. But other than that, we're pretty much the same thing. We just come about the truth in different ways. So really what we both, we, we had our mission that he was going to go to the, the Calvinist seminary and I was going to go to the Lutheran seminary, and we were going to bring these church bodies uh, into fellowship to show that we really did have, we were close enough to the truth, the both of us. The irony in all of that is that's effectively the reform position from the beginning to the end, is that we're, we're all the same. And it's a, a stodgy Lutheran's like, well, no, this body and blood of Jesus thing, it's kind of, well, everything. Hey, Danzer, we've been ignoring you. Any thoughts so far uh, about uh, uh, Christian, non-Christian religion, or uh, no Christian religion can effectively teach, save yourself, strive for your own works? Yeah, or why is it that even Christianity is tempted to become that? Um, I, I think it's because this is what people, this most people realize something's not quite right with life, or at least not quite right with them. And it's, I guess, logical to conclude that things should be better. And now the question is, how in the world can I improve myself? How can things get better? How can I make it better? And religion, God, certainly must be here for that purpose. And and to a certain degree, it might be confusing. It might be confusing consequence with purpose. You know, um, uh, there are many things that might, in fact, improve uh, for a Christian. It, I mean, once the forgiveness of sins comes and frees a person 
from uh, what we're about to talk about, the opinion of the law, they might actually be able to be of some use to their neighbor. Uh, I guess you could say that's an improvement. Uh, but that's a result of the main thing, which is dealing with an issue that's it's far more than self-improvement, but it's 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 self-death, and then it's a brand new resurrection. It's the fact that um, God actually has to rescue us. Uh, it's a rescue operation, not a I don't know a bolstering operation. The line has fallen. Uh, we gotta actually have somebody come in and save our butts. Right. I mean, it's it's <laughs> obvious just looking out at the world, it's only natural to think, well, i got to kind of tidy this place up a little bit, right? It, one way or the other, things aren't as they should be, and we all find that every, pretty much every morning. Uh, the, the the natural inclination then is to go out and try to fight back, to, to, to make the world submit to us. It seems like it should, but it doesn't really want to. And yet, what is not natural to us, which needs what needs to be revealed to us, what Christianity uniquely reveals, as you just said, is that we actually can't fight back enough to fix it. And in fact, yeah, so the scriptures, the scriptures have two things that it wants to correct, kind of the general human opinion on. It wants to say, on the one hand, yes, you need a rescue. Um, uh, the solution is not going to be from you; it's going to be from outside of you. But even primary to that, or at least it happens first, uh, experientially, you might say. First, someone has to come and say. Actually, the situation is a lot worse than you think. Uh, you're you're doomed. You're dead, uh, and uh, actually, you're working against us. Um, so, and and this is the classic uh, Lutheran distinction between the law and the gospel. That both these things need to be preached. Uh, so I, we we always get caught up in questions of what's missing: the gospel or the law. And the answer is probably both almost all the time. But uh, the law hasn't done its real work of killing yet. And so no surprise people aren't interested in the rather drastic heart surgery uh, or, you know, a heart replacement uh, that God is actually going to do in the gospel. To lose one of them, law or gospel, is to lose them both ultimately. And uh, something, uh, the saving image here is it's like a man who has got a cramp in a swimming pool or maybe is getting pulled down by the waves at the beach. And if he continues to try to swim haphazardly, the, the lifeguard won't be able to help him. In fact, he'll drown the lifeguard as well. And so there's a point at which he's just got to stop working. That doesn't mean you stop doing good works, but it means you stop trusting that you have the ability to overcome what this age has, the darkness of this age, with those works. The works are instead, really, ultimately, for your neighbor. But it's this opinion legacy you mentioned it, so let's just go ahead and read the quote. Because of the opinion legacy inherent in man, the religion of all unbelievers is the religion of of works. So while Christianity uniquely knows this dual revelation of law and gospel, the natural revelation of the law in the world doesn't help anybody very much. Okay, we're going to be using this phrase a little bit, the opinio legis. Uh, sometimes Latin's really easy. You can just add an N, opinion, and then legislature, law, uh, the opinion of the law. And it's it's how do we see the law working? And for anybody who's following along, we're at uh, Peepers Dogmatics, top of the page 13. Uh, talking about this opinion of the law, the inborn understanding of what is the law and all structure kind of for. Um, and, and our opinion is that God has given it to us, and because he's given it to us, one, we certainly can do it, and it should, in fact, be easy and, and no problem. And also that the reason God's given it to us is he wants us to do these things and prove ourselves, uh, impress him, and, and therefore earn our way into his good favor, you might say, earn our way uh, in, into eternal life, uh, maybe even become gods ourselves. 
uh, if you want to think of it in that way. And that is the basic opinion that we have of the law. God has given us these things, therefore we must be able to do them, because that'd be kind of silly, wouldn't it, to give some, tell someone to do something they can't do. But then also um, that he's going to be impressed when we do these things. This is one of those places where the phrase rightly applies, though. I mean, that's just our opinion. And it's not exactly. it's not God's opinion at all, right? This is really interesting. Um, if we look at the wider context of Peeper, what he's going through now is he's showing he established there are only two religions in the world, right? The religion of the law, where man can do everything, and the religion of the gospel, where uh, man can't really do anything. It's the truth that man can't do anything and that uh, Jesus Christ was sent to save us, uh, to accomplish all of this for us. Um, and so what he's doing here is, I can't remember if this is the third or fourth definition um, that Pieper is systematically going through and saying, well, there's this definition that theologians work with today and it doesn't work because it's not true. Um, and so uh, now he's on this, what you said, what we started the show out with was uh, uh, men can strive to be uh, to have a relation with God or men strive to be up to God or something like that. Um, and that is exactly the opinion of the law. Um, and all of this comes down to what uh, Pastor Denzer pointed out earlier with uh, the dis proper distinction of law and gospel. Um, and I've been reading some Walther lately, which is always a good thing. Um, and I think it's in his first or second evening lecture. Um, if, if it's all right, I'll read a, yeah, go for it. a, a quote. Um, he said, the law may be preached to the most ungodly person and his conscience will tell him that is true. But when the gospel is preached to him, his conscience does not tell him the same. The preaching of the gospel rather makes him angry. The worst slave of vice admits that he ought to do what is written in the law. Why is this? Because the law is written in his heart. The situation is different when the gospel is preached. The gospel reveals and proclaims nothing but free acts of divine grace, and these are not at all self-evident. So it comes down to um, we want to, because of the opinio legis, the opinion of the law, we want to be able to do this. We want to naturally uh, be able to strive to be like God or to please God or whatever. But the gospel comes in and is completely, um, well, St. Paul calls it folly and foolishness. Um, it's offensive. It's a stumbling block. Um, and I guess we're probably going to get to that later. Yeah, that, um, that, that, that does tie really in well what Walter said in your follow-up to the, the next quote from Pieper as well, where he says that, uh, I'm, I'm going to summarize it and then I'm going to say it. He basically says that while you have in man this religion of the law, and you can find it in every single spirituality and religion that they ever develop anywhere, that we ever develop anywhere, there is in no man the striving after the way of life which the Christian religion actually offers which is salvation through faith in Christ crucified for the sins of the world. The way of grace is unknown to man. So on the one hand, even though we don't keep the law, we're always willing to either try or pretend that we are or admit that, yeah, yeah, you know, I shouldn't be a drunken swindler. You're right. I just can't help myself. But you're right. It's, it's wrong of me to do these things. We'll do all of that of our own. Uh, but what we won't do is this gets back a little bit to what we talked about with uh, the other guys last time in Romans 12, this presentation of our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, that is 
saying I have nothing to offer to God. I simply need to be killed by God. I'm only worthy of punishment by God. I'm just a sheep for the slaughter in God's pasture. I don't seek after him at all. But Christ has sought after me. He has taken that punishment from me uh, and now, in fact, sets me in his place. That I don't find in myself. That has to be told to me. And even as a Christian, because my flesh still dwells with me, I have to be told that again and again. This is why we go to church. I don't go to church to learn to become a better person. I go to church to be forgiven for the person I continually am being. And this is not, we'll get into this later uh, throughout throughout Peter's uh, discussions, but this is not to deny that being a good person is, is a good thing. This isn't to say you shouldn't try to be a better person. It's to say that that's not what Christianity is all about. Any thoughts? Right. Um, I, another quote from Walter, which says the exact same thing. Um He says in his second evening lecture, the gospel does not say you must do good works, but it fashions me into a human being. Um, So in this fashion, I really think this fashioning includes exactly what you were talking about. It includes me dying. (laughs) Uh, We're not fully human as sinners. We are not fully human. We are only fully human when we die to our sins and receive the forgiveness of sins in Christ. And only then are we fully human and we're fashioned by God into a creature. And uh, Walter continues into a creature of such a kind as cannot but serve God and his fellow man. And then he ends with verily a precious effect. It is always good to read Walther just to hear the word verily, I, I got to say. Yeah, right. Yeah. Verily, a precious effect. We might have our title in that one. Uh, to make sure that everybody uh, that's listening gets this. So, so when, and Walther's pulling this from Luther. Luther says, basically, when we fell, we stopped being the humanity that God created in its fullness. Now, we didn't, uh, God did not stop maintaining our nature. Uh, it's not that, that God is continuing to make an evil thing or anything like that, but that the, the fullness of humanity has been lost because the image of God that was built into humanity has been lost. And it's only the gospel restoring us to faith that puts that image back onto us. Yeah, and the gospel is not something that's like just hidden or covered over in us and remaining in us. And that's what uh, his point is. Nobody comes up with the gospel on their own. Nobody, the way the corruption of sin works is nobody asks for help in a sense. Um, Nobody cries out, have mercy on me. Everyone cries out, give me a little more time and I'll, I'll, I'll deal with this problem. We'll, we'll, we'll get better. Right. Uh, uh, in case anyone missed it, this quote from Peeper too about nobody has this kind of striving. He's got it in those scare quotes. You, you can't see this over the radio, but I'm you know wiggling my fingers. Uh, I always, you know, there are a couple of phrases in Paul that are always puzzling when he talks about like the the law of Christ that we fulfill or um, the law of faith. Right? It's not about a law of work; it's a law of faith. I always wonder if Paul intends those to be in these same kind of scare quotes um that's exactly peeper's point it seems like it might be a striving thing because it's it's so impossible nobody does it but but the striving in scare quotes that he's talking about is is no efforts or striving at all it's it's faith receiving what somebody else has striven for and that's what christ has done christ crucified we're about to get to that too i think you got a great tangent point there and i don't know that we can chase him much about reading paul and where where paul might be doing what you could call satire or quoting 
uh, say what the enemy would say and then responding right. to it several times in a row. And if you're not careful, you come off thinking that he's he's saying the opposite of what he's actually saying. And that is, uh, I definitely think Paul does that from time to time. Uh, although it doesn't translate into the way that the Greeks used to write in the sense that there aren't any of those um, punctuation marks in the in the Koine Greek style of writing. Uh, one more thought here, and then we're probably going to go to the break and then come back and d- jump into that text that will lead us into 1 Corinthians. But We've talked about God putting us to death now, and this is just something in my own head recently. Coming across the word mortification in some of the writings about about Christian life, and really personally preferring that word mortification to the word sanctification, because mortification contains what sanctification, I think what in the, in the scriptures really is talking about, that I'm being set apart as a sheep to be slaughtered, that my old man is continually being put to death in me, uh, that, that what I come bringing to God is only my own death, and I need to have him exchange it for the, the life that I have through faith in Christ. And that this is what uniquely sets the Christian apart from the world. The, the Muslim offers alms to the poor, uh, but the Christian alone knows he offers nothing to God but his own death. Any thoughts on that with about a minute and a half left here? Something's stopping us. Something is preventing us from doing these good works. And that's why mortification is such an unpopular word. Uh, but I think you're right. It's time to bring it back. It's a very biblical thing. Paul talks about it a lot. And we're about to hear some of that. Uh, we've got to kill whatever is preventing all of these good works. And that's the old sinful nature. Uh, and and that's I, I think you're right. I think that will be the majority of the, you might say, work that needs to be done. Uh, uh, but, you know, God's the one doing that. You're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. I am your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk. I got Pastor Aaron Hamilton and Pastor Sean Danzer with me, riffing off of Dr. Francis Pieper and about to dive into St. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. We'll see how far we get on the other side of this break. You definitely want to stick around. Join Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service and congregations across the country as we celebrate Refugee Sunday, a time to lift up the gifts that migrants and refugees bring to our country and to reflect on Christ's message to welcome the stranger. Together, we can continue the mission of welcoming, embracing, and empowering newcomers. Visit lirs.org kit to download the Refugee Sunday kit for your congregations, including worship guides, bulletin inserts, videos, and more. lirs.org kit. This week on Issues Etc., we'll visit with President Obama's Faith Vote Director, Michael Ware. We'll get the inside story of a Philadelphia abortionist convicted of murder from Philemon McAleer. We'll discuss a biblical response to homosexuality with Pastor Tom Eckstein. And we'll look forward to Sunday morning with Dr. Carl Fikencher. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. The thought of my sons growing up without me inspired me to quit smoking. I talked to my doctors, and then I threw away all my cigarettes, ashtrays, and lighters. I started exercising instead of smoking. Staying away from alcohol when I was first quitting was key. I kept on trying, learned something each time. Do whatever it takes. No matter how many times it takes. We did it, so can you. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and CDC. KFUO.org. Worldwide KFUO presents sacred music every night. Since 1924, KFUO has presented the Word of God in song. Liturgical, hymnody, beautiful. Hear sacred music weeknights after evening prayer on KFUO as well as on weekend afternoons. 
You trust in God's Word and sacred music on the Messenger of Good News, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Born a slave, by the end of the 19th century, Frederick Douglass was a leading abolitionist against slavery, an advocate for women's rights, a diplomat, and an advisor to presidents. During the Civil War, he conferred with President Lincoln, addressing the treatment of black soldiers. In his 1852 speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? He used Psalm 137 to describe the plight of slaves. We wept when we remembered Zion, for there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And referencing Romans 10:8, And in the darkest hours of my career in slavery, this living word of faith and spirit of hope departed not from me to cheer me through the gloom. The Bible, impacting the movement against slavery. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Welcome back to Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition and rebuilding with the confession of who Jesus is and what he's done by means of, at this moment, the words of Dr. Francis Pieper and the words of a couple other pastors in arms with me. I'm Pastor Jonathan Fisk. We've got Pastor Sean Danzer and Pastor Aaron Hamilton here to continue letting Dr. Francis Pieper's discussion of the religion of the world lead us into a better understanding, and particularly now by jumping off into one of the texts that he uses as a proof for what he's teaching about the religion of mankind. So, Dr. Pieper says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, I guess he's quoting First Corinthians here, nor has it entered the heart of man, those things that God has prepared for those who love him. And he says, when the religion of grace is preached to man, it is to him a, and now he quotes again, a stumbling block of foolishness, uh, end quotes. And then Pieper, he does not strive for it. Man doesn't strive for this gospel, but against it. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And there he's pulling from 1 Corinthians 1.23, 1 Corinthians uh, 2.14, and 2.9, and all of that. And what he's getting at is this this idea, again, that uh, we have this flesh within us that is entirely set against being saved. It, it doesn't get it. It doesn't want it. It wants to push it away. And yet we also have this foolish salvation that is coming against us to save us anyway. And I, can, I can't think of a better way to wrestle with this than to just dovetail straight into the actual text of 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 8 and following, where Paul really picks up this chapter and a half long discussion about how the word of God is making war against our minds, really, right? Like, like against the way we think. So let's pick up there. I will read a few verses and then we can, we can, we can just kind of riff off it. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then verse 19, he has like a proof text from the Old Testament, right? He's trying to prove what he just said. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So he sets up that, that Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return, it's idiocy to anybody who doesn't actually believe it. But once you believe it, it's not idiocy at all. It's, it's great wisdom. Luther, who is essentially saying this exact thing, quoted this, and he said that the word of God is foolishness to us. He was talking about uh, the Feast of the Circumcision of our Lord uh, all the way back at 
January 1st. And he said that circumcision is foolishness to us. Why in the world would God uh, have circumcision? It's absolutely absurd. Uh, However, he brilliantly went off of this whole thing and said, this has to be so that we can die to ourselves, mortificate ourselves to make up a word, um, and let the dame reason, as he called her, um, that lady wisdom die so that God alone can be wise. And that's why we have the word of the cross, that if if the cross, if God had used something that made complete sense to our limited human reason, we would be able to strive and go about and reach up to God by ourselves. But by using foolishness, then, then we have to die to our reason. It allows him alone to be God. If he were to save us in a way that made sense to us, we would think we thought it up. We, exactly. We, yeah, yeah. Right. We we would come along and say it belongs to us. So that it's an all-out assault. Verse twenty. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Man, right there. It's just it's just a full-out attack. You think you know stuff, but everything you know doesn't mean well anything. To say it nicely. In the man Jesus Christ. God himself is here, which is astounding. This is the mystery of the incarnation that we believe God is a man in Jesus Christ, uh, which is, I mean, that right there is offensive to so many different uh, general religions. But that's kind of what Paul's talking about here. That's the thing that's happened that's uh, changed and made foolish the wisdom of the world. Here's the moment. Prophets have talked about it. Even other religions in general have their ideas of this idea that God might actually come visit sometime, right? Here it is. God has entered into the world, and he's done it in astounding ways, right? You've got these foreign wise men bowing down, which you would only do to a deity, and they're doing it to a little baby sitting in his mom's lap. And particularly, the the, the greatest place you might bow down and worship is when there's a dead, bloody man on a cross hanging there, right? And then somebody shouts out, wow, truly this is the Son of God, right? This is a righteous man. It doesn't make any sense. Like, how the centurion ever get to that point? Like, why (laughs) why would that convince you he's God? Shouldn't he have, like, come down like Hercules and, like, destroyed his enemies or something? But this is then exactly where verse 21 is going, that in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. That is, God decided it was a good idea not to let us figure out who God is. And instead, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, that is, it was God's decision to send this foolish cross idea to save those who believe. And this is because, I think verse 22 says, uh, you have these two ways that humanity would rather be saved, and and he, he illustrates it by the emphasis the Jew or the Gentile would put on it in his time, at least, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. That is, Jews are looking for the mystical, the mysterious, the supernatural, but the Greek, he was looking for the philosophical, the understanding, the, the deep thought. Uh, I would put those in the, in the realm of mysticism and rationalism. All of mankind wants to be saved by what we feel or by what we think, but, verse 23, We preach Christ crucified, which then this is the part Peter quotes, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
verse 25 is is the should be the obvious everyone will agree with that right i mean if there is a god of course he's smarter than us better than us bigger than us pick your term uh and paul is saying you know in his worst moment as if that's a thing god's still better than us our smartest moment um but if if that's true then you certainly ought to believe this you certainly ought to recognize what's being preached i mean we won't because of our sinful nature it's not illogical in God's logic. It's not unreasonable. It is maybe unbelievable, but it's given to be believed. It's given to faith, not to any of these other faculties that we use to get up to God, uh, the, the seeing of signs and experiences or the um, philosophical wisdom, which is epitomized by the Greeks in this era. I think that's you got you hit it right there on the head, and this is the point, although— this what I'm going to say could be misunderstood, and I know it has been before. I've actually been accused uh, by by a, a fellow brother of teaching falsely because of it. But this is precisely it: the gospel is unbelievable. It is absolutely beyond belief. It can't be believed, not by anybody who's thinking, <laughs> and not by anybody who's just judging based on what they see and experience in this subjective world. It is the most unrealistic thing imaginable. It cannot be believed. And yet the miracle, this is the miracle of Christianity, the miracle of regeneration, the, the first resurrection unto life is that here you, I, and, and our listeners are sitting and, and we're, we're talking about it and listening because we believe it. We believe the unbelievable. And then the scriptures teach us that that's by the power of the words themselves. That that foolish cross just comes in and it breaks your brain. And next thing you know, you're alive. It's kind of awesome, really. Yeah, I, I yesterday I was going through Pentecost with my confirmation students. Um, and this theologian said that the great miracle of Pentecost was not that the Holy Spirit sent uh, tongues of fire and, and he allowed the apostles to speak in tongues they didn't know. But the greatest miracle was that 3,000 people had faith. It's not the magic power. It's not yeah. the miracles at all. And, and you know, I'm kind of convinced Jews demand science and Greeks seek wisdom. You see the, this transition of the, the miracles themselves uh, as signs for the end of the old covenant kind of disappearing as the church spreads into the, the Gentile world. There is a little bit of overlap and a little bit of gray area there. But when, when Jesus sends his 12 apostles the first time back in, I think it's Matthew chapter 10, he sends them with all sorts of powers. He sends them with the ability to cast out demons, to heal diseases. You, you guys get to do all sorts of cool stuff. And at the end of the book, he sends them to the whole world and he just says, baptize and teach. Right? And, <laughs> yeah. and that's the miracle though, is that through those things, this baptism into the forgiveness of sins, we actually do believe in God, whereas John tells us that Jesus is doing signs in Jerusalem and he will not entrust himself to any of them because he says, you believe only because of the signs I'm doing. You just want more bread, people. You just want more magic, right? So even the, even the signs, we can't really take in faith. We need this foolish cross to make us alive again. We often have, you know, squabbles. I think Lutherans in particular always want to defend, you know, faith alone. It's not our work. It's not our decision. And there's a large chunk of Christianity that really wants to emphasize, you know, a time when someone decided or was aware and came to faith, uh, you know, uh, when you first believed all of these kind of phrases. Uh, and, and we, I think we have a, a true critique of that, uh, where 
it, it, we're not concerned with that. It's not about our grasping it. But it's hard for our experience to understand that in any other way. I think there's where it's so wonderful the scriptures come and inform us of what actually happened after the fact. We need that. We need it to come and say, well, you may have thought that's what happened, but here's what actually happened. What actually happened was, just as you put it, Pastor Fisk, a miracle that the Holy Spirit was at work to take something, I, I think that works, actually, unbelievable, and um, and and make you believe it. How is this for uh, an insult of good news? God chose what is foolish. That means you. God chose what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. That is, he chose you, foolish person, and he nailed you to the cross in Jesus and then told you about it with a foolish gospel in order to shame whatever wisdom you thought you had whatever wisdom the world thought it had. God chose what is weak in the world, you, to be saved, through the weakness of you, put upon his son Jesus on the cross, in order to shame the strength you thought you had. God chose what is low and despised in the world, you, put into Christ on the cross, Christ on the cross, weak, and what is that? Who is this dying there? How could we say this is God? Even the things that are not, this God who becomes sin for us, as Paul says in another place, to bring to nothing the things that are, that is what you think you are. That's what you think you've achieved. So that why, 29, no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that we would be, I think he says earlier in uh, in Romans chapter 3, uh, that we would be held accountable, that we would be silent before God. And because of him then, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, to you, the real wisdom, the real righteousness, the real sanctification, the real redemption, so that you can boast. I mean, this is where it's all going. You, you can be excited about something. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, boast in that cross, boast in that folly, right? Boast in the the weakness that we have that has been absorbed by Jesus. Paul's now going to show that he himself is an example of this too, as Paul likes to do. But Paul, I, I don't know what to call it, inverse boasting, I guess. Paul likes to have a chance to talk about himself, but uh, and maybe it shows that he was kind of an arrogant uh, academic before this. But now God's going to have him boast about all of the ways that he's a, kind of a negative example. And uh, Paul's one of these, right? I came to you, and how was my ministry? It wasn't impressive, actually. It was, I mean, my I wasn't as uh, fancy as Apollos. He was the real cult, uh, sculpted sermons and, and flowery imagery, and mine was kind of boring. Maybe I even had some kind of speech impediment, and uh, I didn't come with crazy ideas. And this wonderful verse that that still is kind of a a banner for all of us, I think. I decided and determined I'm going to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's like, okay, what's the bottom line? What's the center of the message? And, boy, it's only in in this whole chapter and the next chapter, it is just one sentence and the one we have before about preaching Christ crucified. But we ought to recognize in that little phrase we're to see, and you said it so well, everything about Christ, about his death and his resurrection, his perfect life in our place, his innocent suffering and death to pay the penalty for what we ought to have deserved, um, and his resurrection that gives us a certainty of eternal life. All of that is is summarized in this catchphrase, right? Christ crucified. Um, and that's the thing he's going to preach, which is not exciting. Even today in Christians, we want to get past that. We want to get on to, I don't know, victorious living, all sorts of other things. Um, Paul wants to bring us back. Nope, this, Christ crucified, that, that's the be-all and end-all of this. Isn't it interesting that he, verse 3, he was he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling? I mean, uh, he's an apostle, right? 
I mean, he's been stoned to death and walked out again. Actually, I think that happens in Corinth uh, after the event. But, you know, all the things that happened to him in his life, uh, yet he's still nervous about this message. And I wonder, you know, is that is that his own flesh there uh, struggling to trust in the power of God and salvation? Yet he does. Verse 4, my speech and message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of spirit and of power. Although right there, man, golly, that's, that's where it gets dangerous, right? We could take that and you could say, Oh yeah, he wasn't he wasn't dealing with like seminary education stuff. What he was doing was miracles. That's what did it. Spirit and power. You, we can take that language and absorb it right back into what our flesh would rather have. Do you take that there as being um, what we usually call miraculous gifts of the spirit? There. No, see, I don't. I would say that's okay. coming later in the book. I would say what he says. My, the demonstration of spirit and power is precisely what he just said a moment before. I knew nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, and that demonstrated the spirit's power because you believed it. Right? right. I came here with. I like it. Yeah, I bored people to death till they fell out of windows. Right. I, I I was afraid of you, but I just kept speaking Christ crucified. And look, you're a church now. Proof. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even if we did want to take it as being kind of the you know like speaking in tongues, I suppose is the um, most dramatic example. Right. All you have to do is read the rest of the book. He's going to get to that. That happens to be the particular problem of this congregation, the Corinthians. They're obsessed with all these crazy powers. Uh, well, crazy. They're not crazy. They're a gift of God. But um, they're so obsessed with doing these and one-upmanship on each other. Paul's finally going to get to the end. He's say, well, yeah, those are great. I can do them better than you, by the way, because I'm an apostle. Huh. But um, how about love? Have you ever tried this one? This is like the greatest <laughs> gift of all, right? Right. <laughs> Everyone right. knows that because we all read it at weddings. But uh, Paul is, you said it before, he's sarcastic. He's he is trying to shame them a little bit in a human sense, um, but that's because because of exactly this exchange that God Himself has done. He has had He's laughed and had the world in derision because all of their great uh, accomplishments and achievements have come to nothing. And then, like we're going to hear, you know, just tomorrow, uh, this little baby, pretty foolish thing, and uh, those strange magi from the east are bowing down to God to Him, and they're absolutely right. Yeah, Paul, he shows himself as an example to the Corinthians, I guess. Uh, and it's not the example of, like you said, Pastor Denzer, of victorious living. Like, look at me. I have a great diet. I um, I definitely treat my body like the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is what I got in college in my physical education class. But instead, he says, hey, you know what? I step all of this wisdom to the side. I completely die to myself. And I don't know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's the this preaching, this foolishness is the demonstration of the spirit. And this is the true power. All the miracles, they're, they're secondary. Uh, they really do. They pass away. They're, they, and that's so obvious, too. They're miracles for this life only. The people that were healed by Jesus later died. Right, there. Unless there were some some uh, fiery chariots we don't know about in the New Testament taking people straight up to heaven, Lazarus went back into the grave again later. So none of that was enough. But the faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus that is enough. That is the wisdom that's not of men, but the actual power of God. Now in the next section, verses uh, six and following, I get the impression that Paul is wanting to make sure that no Christian hears this and thinks he's saying that our religion's stupid, right? You, know, you, can, you can just see this in some sort of doctrinal review kind of situation. It's like, no, he said, he said Christianity's folly. He's a heretic, right? And, <laughs> and it's like, no, no, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God 
which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, and now here's Peeper's quote, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And there, this is where Peeper's really getting at. God has revealed these things through the Spirit. The Word of God, the Scriptures, are established and trustworthy at this point. You can slip up here. I mean, the, the, this has a history in the church imparting a secret hidden knowledge. Uh, this whole Gnostic heresy that, that plagued the early church was, I think they would have taken this passage and said, see, we're right. But Paul's not talking about he's got some secret knowledge he's going to impart to you later. He's talking about, just like you said, what the scriptures have already been showing. It was hidden and could be maybe seen in little hints in the Old Testament. Uh, but now it's been fully disclosed, and it's been disclosed in Christ. It's being disclosed in the writings of the apostles here. And um, it's not a secret knowledge. You know, what do you think? You think of all sorts of weird conspiracy theories and um, plans, and, and we, probably the next place we ought to look is the news and see who's going to come to power if we're going to talk about God's secret hidden uh, plans for the world. But no, again, that's the worldly kind of wisdom uh, would think that's what's going on. He's talking about the cross again. And what was the secret was the salvation of the world through Jesus Christ. And what was hidden is not to be hidden. It is, is entirely disclosed. And, and that's this message, right? Christ and him crucified. And I'm just going to placard that all over. Uh, and I can't believe you guys would even forget it. And we even have here sort of a quote within a quote. So he's, Peeper quoted this section, but then it's going back to an Old Testament text that probably has some implication for how we would understand this as well, right? Paul is quoting from Isaiah 64, and Isaiah 64 opens up, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. But then, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. So Isaiah here is saying that no one has seen a God like this true God. This is the, the hidden wisdom, I guess, uh, also uh, that Isaiah is talking about, that there's no other God, there's no nobody else has seen the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as he has revealed himself uh, in these last days, even though they've seen some great powers. But the truly amazing thing is he ends up asking the question, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? And then later he says, There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of your iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? And then St. Paul answers the question, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And then we have to ask the question, well, what are these things? Uh, like uh, Pastor Denzer was talking about before, sometimes we want to say these things are um, maybe the Gnostic hidden wisdom, or maybe it's the, uh, the great spiritual miracles um, but these things freely given by God, that's the great miracle that we were talking about, faith. Well, he says then we impart these in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. And I think it's just so key there. He does mean words.
He doesn't mean some some new thing that I'm going to find by myself in a corner as I'm striving after God. That's exactly what false religion would teach you to do. Paul says we, the apostles, are giving you words now that are not from man. They're from God. They're given by the Spirit. And so you who are spiritual— Will then, that is, you who are a Christian, you have faith, as you said, uh, Pastor Hamilton, uh, you who are, are in Christ will understand and believe and cling to these truths. Finally then, uh, and this is where Peeper's been going, this is where Paul is going, the natural person does not accept any of this. Uh, that is, human nature in his flesh does not accept these words about Jesus, about grace, this scripture given to save us, because they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I think that means without the Holy Spirit, you can't believe him. The spiritual person, the Christian, judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. That is, once you have this law and gospel of God, everything becomes known to you, and uh, no one can judge you. And then here's, you, we got these scare quotes we were talking about earlier, and so you, Corinthians, you're saying things like this, it's just your interpretation, uh, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, and who can really know? He says, no, 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 we can. We have the mind of Christ, and this has set us apart from the world. The natural person being uh, the person who's not been brought to faith by this miracle uh, by it's whenever you see the small s in spiritually you should think capital s holy spirit here and um and, and you're right when you think capital s holy spirit you should also think this word of the gospel this word of the cross which is so foolish this word of the scriptures uh preached by the apostles it it takes that it takes something dramatic that happens in the hearing of this of these words as as dumb as that seems uh because those are the things that enlighten those are the things that give the gospel and, and bring about faith um and without that yeah the natural man does not understand this and back to what peeper was saying uh you don't come to faith by looking around at the world even recognizing that there is a god which we certainly can and then discerning from that yeah, and this God wants to forgive my sins because I'm not worthy of his mercy. You can't believe the gospel. You can't come to this of your own natural reason. It's complete foolishness, uh, as Pastor Denzer pointed out, to to look out and on the world and see, especially in North Dakota, where the high today is five or six below, um, I'm not going to look out there and see the death of winter and see that God wants to forgive me my sins. That's just impossible. You can't see that. Uh, but you do see it when the Holy Spirit works his great power and his great wisdom, which seems to be foolishness to us, um, so that you can believe that foolishness of the gospel. You're listening to Cross Defense. My guests are Pastor Aaron Hamilton of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lisbon, North Dakota, and Pastor Sean Danzer of Trinity Lutheran Church and Peace Lutheran Church, also up there in the area of Great Bend and Barney, North Dakota, talking about Dr. Francis Pieper. Thank you very much for being with me today, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. All of it comes back to what Pieper is trying to drive home, that there is really one religion in the entire world, the religion of man, the religion of our flesh, the religion of our fall, which is built into the belief or built on the belief that we can climb a ladder to God if we just try hard enough. We might have slipped, but we're going to get back there somehow. And then there is the religion that's not from the world, the religion that God has spoken into the world, Christianity, which is who Jesus is, what he's done what he's coming again to do. And our natural man won't believe that. We think it's foolishness. We think it's folly. Who could think God would save the world by 
sending himself to die on a cross. But that folly nonetheless comes and has and continues to make believers, well, out of you. So that you're enlivened by these words. You're strengthened with these gifts. That's why having good doctrine is so important that we don't forget that fact of who we are in Jesus. Cross Defense is underwritten for you by the Luther Academy, and you can check them out at lutheracademy.com. Get in touch with them and let them know how much you appreciate all that they do, including bringing you Cross Defense here on KFUO. Until next time, rock on. Rock on.